morning, everyone. Uh, just a quick note before we uh, enter into God's word this morning. Um, the last couple of weeks, I have had a number of people looking at me funny. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Danny and I are expecting. So there's my... <laughs> I'm just a little tired of people quizzically looking at my stomach. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. We are celebrating with a few other couples in our church right now as well that are expecting. Uh, Curtis and, and Nicole are expecting their fifth in September. John and Melissa Vanderheiden are also expecting. And Taya Dornmoss is just about to pop. So if you see, congratulate. She's not here today, but you can certainly congratulate the family. Uh, so we are celebrating certainly with a number of, of couples, but just wanted to get that out of the way so that we can now focus on Jesus. Okay, so <laughs> this morning we are doing a couple of things. As uh, both Pastor Liz and Martin have mentioned, we are celebrating the day of Pentecost, but not only that, um, you know, of course, Pentecost, which is the day when the Spirit was released from heaven to fall on the disciples of Jesus, but we're also actually starting a whole new summer series specifically on the Holy Spirit. So I, I, the hope, of course, in this is that, especially after a couple of years, a couple of pretty tough years of us feeling, you know, more separated and fragmented and isolated from one another than probably ever before, it's probably helpful for us to really focus on that which unites us. And based on Scripture, the Holy Spirit is the great unifier of the disciples of Jesus. It's the glue that holds us together. So we're going to spend the summer talking about the Spirit, and we'll be looking at different passages in Scripture that speak to the Spirit, because we will still be having some guest preachers coming in, probably about every other week, that will contribute to this message. And we'll touch on topics like who the Spirit is, what the Spirit does, how the Spirit moves and operates, and ultimately how the Spirit transforms us and empowers us to live in light of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay, so what better place then, of course, today to start than at Pentecost, where the disciples were finally able to experience, perhaps not fully understand or comprehend, but experience the power of the risen Jesus and at least recognize, at least in part, why he left. Why did he leave again? Well, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. So that he could go and enter his reign next to the Father. So that a bridge could be formed between heaven and earth. So that Jesus could represent our humanity in heaven and therefore release the Holy Spirit to us and he could dwell here among us. Remember that? That means he's now limitless. So that we could then participate through his Spirit in what he's doing as king to bring about a new creation, to bring about a new heavens and a new earth for the future kingdom. More simply put, ultimately at Pentecost, we remember that Jesus left his disciples because he was leaving his disciples with something better, something much better. How do we know this? Well, remember what Jesus said in John 14. Even before he died, he said this, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, which is already crazy enough, right? And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Because I am going to the Father, they will do even greater things than these. In other words, we have to believe that his physical leaving from us was really for his and our best interests. 
It's because he has gone to the Father that we somehow now have the capacity to do together as his body even greater things than what Jesus did, which may sound absolutely ludicrous, like there's no way we can do greater things than what Jesus did. The man walked on water, like come on. But what happened at Pentecost shows us that Jesus wasn't exaggerating. Greater things are happening, just not in the ways that we would have expected. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 2. This is the story of Pentecost. You've heard it in brief from Pastor Liz. Now we're going to read it as it's written in Acts chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. The words will also be on the screen, but you can also, of course, grab the Bibles that are in front of you or your own Bibles. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. All of the disciples were together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to start off this morning, we're going to be asking three questions of the text, okay? Just three questions this morning. Number one, who is the Spirit? Number two, why is the Spirit doing what the Spirit is doing? And number three, what does it all mean, okay? So first, who is the Spirit? To answer that, we're going to have to have a little Hebrew vocabulary lesson this morning, okay? So it's going to be fun. It's a word that we need to remember throughout the next few months, okay? Because it's naturally going to keep coming up. The word is ruah, pronounced ruah, okay? So there's a little bit of a at the, at the end of it, which, you know, is a bit of a problem for me, but some of you Dutchies won't have a problem with it. Ruah is the Hebrew word for spirit, but it also means breath and wind, Okay? It also means breath and wind. So anytime translators see this word in the Old Testament, they have to discern, okay, what exactly is the context here? And are we talking about a wind? Are we talking about a breath? Or are we talking about a spirit? We see wind, for example, being used in the Exodus story, when Moses stretches out his hand over Egypt, and God causes a strong wind to come in from the east and actually blows in the locusts at that time. We see it again when he's at the Red Sea, and he's stretching out his arm over the Red Sea, and God causes an east wind again to come in and to drive the sea back and turn it into dry land. 
We see breath, for example, being used, and I'm sorry, I don't have these ones up on the screen, but we see breath being used in the Psalms when David says that by the breath of his mouth, God made all the hosts in heaven. And in Job, when he says that the breath of Almighty gives him life, it's that same word being used. And of course, there's other instances where the word spirit is used. These are all instances, though, where the word ruah is used. So yes, there are different English words that we need to use for different contexts in Scripture, but it's the same word in Hebrew, which implies then that we can't necessarily separate these definitions. For example, in the beginning, Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, in that context, I think it is perfectly appropriate for us to connect that word spirit with the life-giving breath of God and the creation-moving wind, okay, that's shifting everything around, right? You, and that's this instance where you can see, you can kind of imagine breath, wind, and spirit operating together. And my hope, of course, for this morning is that every time then now, that after you leave from this place, every time you feel the wind or a breeze even, or the AC unit in your car, you can, you, it can remind you of the life-giving breath of God and of His Spirit moving around you. So now let's look at that, let's go back to that passage in Acts. What do we see there? Verse 2, suddenly the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. The sound of the blowing of a violent wind. Okay, so right immediately, if we know our Old Testament, immediately before any identity or name is even mentioned, we should know who this is. We should know what's going on. If we want to look at it from an Israelite Jewish point of view, right, in their language and in their understanding, when anytime you see wind or breath or spirit, you know what's going on. That's how they would have seen the world. Right from the get-go, Luke is making it clear that the Spirit is now the main actor in this story. Now that Jesus has left, the Spirit now becomes the main actor in this story. Why then is the Spirit doing what the Spirit is doing? Verses 3 to 4, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So first thing we should notice here, right, is that the Spirit is doing something that the Spirit has never done before. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit would, yes, occasionally fall, but fall on someone in particular for a specific reason. They would fall on a prophet. The, the prophet would be filled with the Spirit of God. Certain people would be, would be anointed with God's Spirit to do a specific kind of task, a couple weeks ago, we mentioned uh, Elisha, who received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. That language is used, but it was usually only one person here and there. So-and-so had the Spirit of God anointed on them. But this, this is different. Everyone in that space, and, and based on Acts 1, we read there that it was 120 disciples that were together. So men, women, children, there's about 120 in total with the 12 apostles. Everyone there, everyone, was filled 
with the Holy Spirit. This is something totally new. Although if you're familiar with your Old Testament prophets, you'll remember actually that the prophet Joel foresaw this. Because back in the, in the book of Joel, he foresaw that God would pour out his spirit on all people. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Meaning then, already in the Old Testament, we know that the spirit does not discriminate between holy and unholy, between economic class, age, place in society, ethnic identity, gender, witnessing to God's wonders through Jesus is now an assignment given by God to everyone. I'm going to say that again. Witnessing to God's wonders through Jesus is now not just something given to a priest, a prophet, or a king, somebody important. It's now an assignment given from God to everyone. So here, the Spirit is doing what was really in the plan all along. But why different tongues? Why are 120 or some odd disciples inspired and given the gift of speaking in other languages? Well, let's think about it from an Israelite point of view again. What was the Israelites' most important identity marker? What was the thing that was most important to them? Their law. What was the law written in? Hebrew. See, the Israelites had a, a Hebrew identity that was wrapped up in a few very key things. Their law, their land, their autonomy as a nation, their God, and of course, by necessity, their language. These things made them God's people. Which is why when Israel was then conquered and dispersed into other nations and forced to give up custom and culture and learn other languages, that would have been devastating for them. It's why it was so devastating. But here now, what's being demonstrated? Not that there is only one holy language or culture, the disciples are given by the Spirit all sorts of languages by which to proclaim the wonders of God. In other words, honor here is given to all languages and cultures of the world because God wants to communicate himself through every language. He wants to reach every people group, which means that the gospel message is meant to go everywhere, to be conversed in every language, in every context. Not to say that those cultures don't need to be transformed by the gospel. Every culture needs to be transformed. But every culture and language has inherent dignity now because it comes as a gift from God. Last night, Danny and I, were, when we were at the wedding, actually, we were sitting next to a woman who was born in Matilda. She was born in Zambia, and I, I think they did that intentionally, you know, because anytime somebody who's African sits to another person who's African, it's like, oh, you're my people, um, and they have this wonderful connection. So I think, I think Danny was intentionally seated next to Matilda, but they started this conversation, and because Zambia is, used to be a British colony, 
it's got a whole swath of different languages. So does Angola and some other African countries. I know Kenya has 40 plus different languages being spoken. But I asked Matilda, you know, as a British colony, what are some of the main languages there? And she, she gave a list, but she said in that country, there's 72 different languages that are spoken. In one country, there's 72 different languages. Imagine then on the continent of Africa, how many different languages there are present there? How many different ways there are there of speaking of the wonders of God? It's a really beautiful thing to think about. And this, this sort of honoring of languages, we have to realize, is something that has not happened since the Tower of Babel. Some of you are familiar with this narrative, but way back in Genesis 11, humans decide to try and fix the problem of being separated from God by building a tower, right? And trying to ascend to God. So as a judgment on their arrogance, God drops a bunch of different languages on them in order to confuse them so they can't actually understand each other. And it's the first time we see a dispersing of language and, and sort of the categorization of humans into different people groups. What we see the Spirit now, though, doing at Pentecost is reversing that event, or maybe not even reversing it, but starting new creation, regaining creation, regaining a sense of what this was supposed to be. Because now that the Father has His Son next to Him, Jesus is now able to descend to earth by His Spirit and start uniting all of these people together and reconciling them back to Himself. And he's using language as a means to do that. So what we see then is that the Spirit here is both the great diversifier of humans, but also the great unifier. Because it offers us the gifts of diversity, but the Spirit also unites us within that diversity. What then is the Spirit doing? Well, the Spirit is regaining in this passage well, the Spirit's doing a number of things, but for our, this morning's purposes, the Spirit is regaining the beauty of diversity by showing that the only unifying factor that we now need is Jesus. It's really that simple. He is our common denominator. We don't need to speak the same language. We don't need to look the same. We can actually delight in differences because we no longer have a need to feel threatened by them. When I was in Kenya back in 2014 for a course with Regent, we were over there studying African theology. Um, a young Chinese woman was there on the trip with me. Her name was Miao. And she was the first of all of us to desire to learn some words in Swahili so that she could interact with the locals who were there. And it, it was a bit ironic because you know, most of the rest of us who were, whose, you know, first language is English and were used to being the dominant language speakers and had the most confidence most of the time, hadn't even really considered learning much Swahili. You know, you're the dominant language speaker, you can get by without, you know, having to learn that stuff. But in Miao's words, and I've never forgotten this, it is honoring to the people there that I learn some of their language. And by the end of the trip, she was speaking in full sentences and having little conversations with them, and it was way beyond anything that the rest of us had even thought about doing. There is something really significant 
Similar to how we seek to understand even the Hebrew language so that we can understand our scriptures better and the Israelite people better, there's something significant about understanding and delighting in how someone else sees the world. Because language is a bit of a lens to how someone sees the world. It's a lens to worldview. Because our joy and our delight in that, based on these verses, is spirit-given and can actually be a witness to the goodness of God. Look at what we see in verses 5 through 6. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. In other words, right, the whole world right now is in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken, right? So these Jews who had come to this festival from all over the world, all over the known world, whose ancestors had previously been scattered and had had to learn other languages, these Jews are hearing not Greek philosophy or Turkish poetry, but they're hearing the news of Jesus' resurrection. And they're hearing it in their own native tongue. That's what makes them gather around. That's what makes them come near because they're hearing not just some otherworldly spiritual language, although the Spirit can certainly give those as well, but their own earthly, messy jargons in their own languages that are now being affirmed as gifts and means by which the gospel can be spread. And as you can imagine, this really just was not what the disciples were expecting. This wasn't something that they'd seen Jesus do. Why would they think for themselves then that this would be a task given to them by Jesus? Well, now that they have the Spirit, it's an option. It wasn't an option before. They had even asked him back in Acts chapter 1 if he would now restore the kingdom of, of or if he would now restore the kingdom to Israel. In other words, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to our culture and our law and our language and our kingdom? That's what they had been expecting. That's what they had been wanting. So this event would completely throw up all of their expectations. Because again, uniformity to any one culture or custom, as it turns out, is not actually God's way. Unity, rather, is found in the king who sits on the throne. And the hope all along was for God's spirit, breath, wind to bring people in from every corner of the world to worship that king who sits on the throne. And so we turn now to the key phrase here in this whole passage, down at verse 12. All these people from all these different places are hearing of the wonders of God, and amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? What does it mean? We've, you know, spent some time implying what it would have meant for those early disciples, but what about for us? Well, Imagine with me for a moment, okay, just imagine this scenario. You work for National Geographic, okay? You just got a job working for National Geographic. And you've been tasked with going to Yemen to explore the near extinction 
of a rare earth beetle. Okay? Couldn't think of anything better. But that's what you've been tasked to do. Okay? You gotta go to Yemen. So you get on the, you hop on a flight, you have to hop on another flight, you have to hop on another flight, and finally you get to this little village where you're staying, and you don't understand a word that anyone is saying. Nobody speaks a lick of English. It's a completely different language than anything you've ever heard before. You can't buy food without doing, you know, awkward and very incorrect, you know, sign language. And all the while you're bemoaning the reality that you have to be here for, you know, three to four weeks and somehow get by. Well, after a few days of enduring this, you're walking one day up a street and you hear someone speaking your language. And in that moment, sheer joy rushes over you and nothing can keep you from running to wherever that beautiful, melodious sound has just come from. You finally find the person who turns out to be a tourist in the area and is just as lost as you've been. And the two of you strike up a conversation and you're talking 100 miles a minute because you're both just so finally relieved not just to be speaking the same language, but to finally be understood. You're finally able to be understood by somebody. Why... Why is it often so frustrating for us and so depleting for us when we don't feel understood? In those kinds of situations, when we don't feel like anything's getting across, we can't understand, it's so depleting for us. Why is that? Well, because just like for the people of Babel, confusion renders us powerless. When we can't communicate, or we don't understand, or we don't feel understood, it, it can be really humbling, but most of the time it's actually just plain aggravating. Why? Because in our sinful state, we hate feeling misunderstood or feeling like we can't understand because it actually makes us feel less than. It makes us feel less confident, less powerful, less in control. We feel helpless because our basic form of communication is gone. We, we feel like we're on the outside. We, we, we don't feel known. We don't feel received. We can't sort of express ourselves. We don't feel understood. But, and this is what Pentecost means, Pentecost shows us that our God, as we've said before, our God is a God who wants to meet us where we are and he desires that we understand what he's done for us. Remember, he never makes us go to him. He always finds a way to come to us. And that same relief that we feel when we're finally understood, it's that sort of coming home feeling that God desires to offer to us. He wants us to know that we are known, that we are seen, that we are valued, that we have dignity. And the way that he's ultimately done that is, of course, by giving us Jesus. So that when we interact with other believers, with other members of Christ's body, we're not drawn together and delighted because of any common language, but because of our common king.
which is all a work of the Spirit within us unifying us together. The disciples' utterances in other languages would have meant nothing. It would have just been a fancy performance if not for the Spirit beneath it. They were powerful words, but it was the power beneath the words that gave it impact. And what we see at Pentecost is that the Father and the Son, through the power of the Spirit together, are beginning to bridge heaven and earth and to bring about transformation. And where is that transformation starting? It's starting with you and me. It started with the disciples. And it looks like this. Unity in diversity. Commonality in distinctiveness. Connection amidst fragmentation. Understanding despite confusion. That's what it looks like. George Ladd A church theologian wrote this, the baptism with the Spirit is the act of the Holy Spirit joining together into a spiritual unity, people of diverse racial extractions and diverse social backgrounds so that they form the one body of Christ. In other words, the oneness that we find in Christ is defined by the Spirit's power and indiscriminatory pouring out, not by any of our ideas of categorization. Think of all the different ways that we seek to categorize ourselves into different groupings and different fragments and different cultures and languages and groupings and we, because we feel most comfortable with what's familiar. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But we have to remember that what really brings unity is not any of our ideas of categorization or groupings. It's the Spirit's power within us. So throughout this summer, as we go through this series, I'd like to invite you to join me in praying for movements of the Spirit, for movements of the Spirit, particularly to be happening in this place, in this community, even in the smallest of ways. And then I challenge you to actually look for the Spirit to be at work, to look for movements of the Spirit's activity. Because imagine, imagine if we all came into this place Whenever we came here, praying for the Spirit to be at work. Just imagine that. Because this power of the Spirit is never separate from the body. Right? The Spirit may fall on certain people in specific ways, but the Spirit is always acting for the benefit of the whole body of Jesus Christ. It's never an individual experience, right? These, the giving of tongues at Pentecost wasn't so that the disciples could have a cool, you know, spiritual individual experience of Jesus, but it was so that the visitors in Jerusalem could actually hear the good news of Jesus' resurrection and the church could grow. Again, our God is a God who reaches us in our humanity in every way possible who reaches down to us in our helplessness, in our fragility, in our powerlessness. He forms a bridge and he invites us to do the same for others. What he does for us, he invites us to do the same for others so that everybody can know and can understand what he's done. He wants us to understand because every good and perfect gift comes from God and that includes language. 
And in closing, I just want to leave us with this one thought. We are the only members in all of creation who actually get to celebrate that. We are the ones. Not the animals, not the rocks, not the mountains. We are the one piece of creation that is actually able to speak out the praises of God in various ways and languages and to witness to his power and to receive new life through the life-giving breath of his spirit so that we can return to him spirit-filled songs in worship. We are the ones who get to have that joy of speaking God's praises It's a gift that I'm sure the rest of creation is just envious of. We have that joy. So may we be good stewards of such a gift. Let's pray. Living God, we want to thank you this morning for every language that is represented in this community, every language, every culture, every individual who is seated here this morning. Lord, we want to thank you that in the most beautiful way, you have united each and every one of us to be one body, to be glued together by your spirit, to be worshiping the same king who is seated on the throne. Remind us over and over and over again, Lord, that in every way we are to depend on your spirit to unify us, to make us one, so that we may be one just as you and the Father are one. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.